0: Favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we are back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole.
1: And I'm Rachel. And it's my week, and I'm bringing us back to birds. (laughs) (laughs) Big surprise. Yeah, surprise. And back to our home territory which is the North American prairies. And I'm very excited. This is going to be like a Hallmark Denizen Species episode about grasshopper sparrows.
0: (laughs) Oh, they're so cute.
1: I love them. Another little mousy creature. So fitting in (laughs) this with uh, this latest theme a bit. Before we get into the meat of the episode, though, we've actually got some pretty exciting news about grassland conservation that's happening right here in North America. Now, this is somewhat older news. Uh, it came out in December of 2020, but there was an article published in The Hill, which was a call via a lot of conservation organizations like the National Wildlife Federation, Pheasants and Quail Forever, and other conservation groups to bring about some really significant grassland-specific action to save our dwindling grasslands, which doesn't really come as a surprise because we know that Grasslands have been named specifically as an area of interest for conservation action from groups like Audubon Society, which has a Prairie Birds Initiative, and the Fish and Wildlife Service has had similar concerns. But this is pretty amazing because what they're actually calling for is something along the lines of the Wetlands Conservation Act, which was enacted several years ago, uh, but a North American Grasslands Conservation Act working to conserve grasslands not necessarily taking grasslands out of production or anything like that, um, but really to provide incentives to protect and restore the ecosystems that remain or that can be restored uh, from folks that own the land and use the land and care about the land. And I want to be good stewards of that land. To really make grassland conservation a priority for the next coming years, uh, which is going to give us some really exciting opportunities to actually actively be involved in the process of yes. some significant grassland conservation work. So it's really exciting and also a very fitting tie-in to uh,
0: today's episode. <laughs> yes. How exciting would it be though for grasslands to finally be a priority like nationwide? Oh my oh, gosh. So exciting.
1: And part of the reason for that is the evaluations that have gone on since like 2014, uh, which specified grassland birds in particular as being yes. a very at risk group of animals that are under some pretty intense conservation watch right
0: now, including the species we're talking about today. Yeah. If you go to 3 billion birds, the number three billion birds.org, they have some really, really cool resources on some. Pretty alarming, but hopeful bird research. <laughs> yeah, cool. So
1: yeah, let's let's talk about grasshopper sparrows. Which, okay, if you, dear listener, feel your attention like glazing over because of the word sparrow, um, <laughs> <laughs> stick with me, because these guys are absolutely incredible and endearing. And gosh, I have a quote from. Joel Sartori? Is that how he say his name from the photo arc? Oh, I
0: follow him on Twitter. Yeah, he has a great Twitter page.
1: Yeah, Joel Sartori <laughs> has been quoted talking specifically about grasshopper sparrows as saying, when we care about the least among us, it can lead to broader environmental thinking, from consumer spending to saving rainforests. I think of the Florida grasshopper sparrow as a gateway drug for nature. Oh and dunnerts too just saying okay but <laughs> dunnerts at least have that sort of charismatic big-eyed fuzzy mammal thing going on <laughs> sparrows uh, pe- people i think tend to because i once was one of these people mm-hmm. lump sparrows all together in like that little brown bird category of just like things yeah. that are all generally the same and like not that interesting but yeah this is gonna be one of those charismatic species in my mind that uh really represents in this case, the grasslands across the entire continent of North America. So truly a denizen of the open grasslands. And honestly, at least in the tallgrass prairie where I've done some work, uh, they they're really considered one of the big four tall grass prairie breeding birds. Uh, we would also consider the meadowlark, the upland sandpiper, and the dixissel, the other three big tall grass prairie breeding birds. So they're they're like... And you mean big as in numerous or big as important? Numerous. Yeah. Prevalent, but also important. You know, they're members of the ecosystem that are feeding others. You know, you mentioned Mm -hmm. potato chips in at least three (laughs) other episodes probably. Yeah. Um, But they are that for bird eating animals in the prairie. Things like loggerhead shrikes will hunt them and uh, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. They're a small bird. So they're, they're important, but they're also incredibly numerous and a good representation of songbirds on grasslands here in this country or continent, rather. <laughs> uh, Nicole. Yes. You have seen grasshopper sparrows. I have. Cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to try to make me uh, remember what they looked like. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm not going to try and make you remember,
1: but if you, thank you. if you, uh, could you know describe your impression of the bird what was your impression of grasshopper sparrows cute
0: you <laughs> d- i i've definitely seen them before but mostly you hear them because like mm-hmm. you said they love that grass they just kind of hide out of the way and they sing their cute little hearts out and yeah no they're very fun birds i like them a lot <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, I I would describe them as being really unassuming little sparrows. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you picture a tiny, mousy little creature running (laughs) around the ground, but then suddenly it flutters up with these, like, really fluttery short wings up to a grass stem, they kind of give the impression of a very weak flyer. And if you catch a glimpse of them from the corner of your eye, instead of hearing them, (laughs) <laughs> you probably would think that you'd seen a mouse running around through the grass because that's kind of yeah. their habits when they're not singing their little hearts out. <laughs> and in addition to being a an iconic denizen of grasslands, um, they're actually designated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a focal species for conservation. It is considered a species of special concern mm-hmm. or greatest conservation need, additionally, in 35 u.s states wow yeah it is considered a common bird in steep decline because although it's super super common throughout grasslands since 1970 about it's lost at least 60 68 percent of its population and it's even worse when you get to the eastern side of their range um, which I'll try to describe their range in, in a little bit. But what's so exciting to me about grasshopper sparrows <laughs> is that they, they really give us a weirdly unprecedented chance to talk about literally every grassland that exists on the <laughs> continent because they live in every prairie environment that you can find in North America, which is pretty crazy. And I will also mention, speaking of eastern populations, that the Florida subspecies is federally critically endangered. Wow, and is the most endangered bird in North America right now. That's a bold claim. Yeah, did you even know this? Have you heard of the <laughs> Florida grasslands or grasshopper sparrow? I don't know that I have. Yeah, right. It's it's uh kind of crazy to think about, and uh, they, like I said, always live in grasslands. So they're not little Everglades birds. They <laughs> live in prairies. In Florida, which is not a combination of words you often hear. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so let me give you like a basic description of the grasshopper sparrow and its range, habitats, behaviors, that kind of stuff. And then I really want to tell you the story of the Florida grasshopper sparrow and some of the conservation successes and interests for this animal. And uh, yeah, let's dive into it. First off, why are they called grasshopper sparrows? excellent question and depending on who you ask you will get one of two (laughs) answers you will hear either it's because they sound like insects which personally i think is not true because i only see that claim in non-academic places um the true reason probably is the second claim you'll see in those more academic places which is that it's their diet so they do have an insecty song. I was gonna say I was just gonna say that. I was like, <laughs> they do sound like bugs though. <laughs> they definitely do. Um, but one of the primary sources of food for them is grasshoppers specifically. Okay. Yeah.
0: And Where were uh, they during like the Great Plague of Grasshoppers that like destroyed people's farms and stuff, huh? I mean, probably struggling because the grassland <laughs>
1: habitats were degraded. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay,
0: I'm, I'm sorry yeah. I
1: asked. No, I'm sad. No, it's, it's, everything's fine. <laughs> um, they will feed insects uh lots of insects grasshoppers caterpillars beetles other things like that they will sometimes eat seeds too but they mostly eat insects and when they feed those grasshoppers to their chicks in the nest they will vigorously shake them to (laughs) uh get the legs off of them so they can't hop away and the baby birds can just devour them easily which i think is adorable is it uh yeah that's okay. called good parenting. Just vigorously <laughs> shake the legs off those grasshoppers. Great oh, job! Oh gosh, I mean they're tiny can, little okay. cute babies, and they're they're eating bugs. I just love it. <laughs> and as far as appearance goes with the grasshopper sparrow, they are not one of the tiny streaky sparrows. Mm-hmm. They're really a buffy, plain-looking thing with tiny yellow splashes of color on their face and mm-hmm. on their wings. So, just like little subtle splashes of that typical Kansas bird yellow color. (laughs) I love them. (laughs) And as far as their songs, they're actually pretty unique in that they have two songs that they sing. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to use some magical editing, and we're going to place the first typical insect song right here.
0: <laughs>
1: I, that's my favorite. Yeah, it's such a good one. It's very insecty. Okay, let me see if they have the second song on this link.
0: Tick tick pizz.
1: <laughs> I actually cannot find a recording of this immediately on All About Birds in their song wow. description, which is usually the resource I use. I know. Um I will try to find one and insert it here. if I find it. It's kind of a, a robot sound. That's what I'm going to call it anyway. Metalarks do some things similar where they have a weird robot sound that they make when they're flying. And the same is true of the Grasshopper Sparrow. The second type of song mm. is usually during a flight display of some kind. They'll be like taking those fluttery little wings and flying around. If you spend a lot of time in the prairie, which I have, you will hear it. <laughs> And it's kind of like if, um, you know, the little like... The little like... Part that's at the end of it just kept Uh going, but it goes like a... (laughs) So like imagine like a little like tinkling robot sound that's very high-pitched and insecty, And that's their flight sound. Okay, okay. But that does make them somewhat unique. um, And I just freaking love it. Now, they will, like I said, eat seeds sometimes... And that's kind of important for the ecology of these grasslands because often they are spreading those seeds in a way that some other animals are not. Let's talk about their range because their range is absolutely huge. And like I said before, it basically gives us a chance to run through almost all of the prairies that exist (laughs) in North America. I literally just wrote LMAO in my notes because it makes me (laughs) delighted. They live in the Great Plains which includes all three major types of prairie. And as you'll recall, the Great Plains extends from Canada down into Mexico. Additionally, they also live in the east and the west, with resident populations living in prairies in Florida all year round. And those birds are living in coastal prairies.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a range map um, on the All About Birds website, and it's just, like, this nice little, like, normal-looking range map with, like, you know, the blue for winter. And there's just, like, two little spots in Florida with, like, all year round. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that's not even really a complete listing of their range because we oh, do have yeah,
1: populations sure. of the birds living in California, for example, and mm-hmm. in the East Coast away from Florida, That are not really as represented in some of the range maps. But Mm -hmm. they do exist and have lived there historically, um, along with other grassland birds, which have really struggled to stick it out because coastal prairies have been degraded so much um, or lost so much. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, they are a migratory bird in the places they're not residents, which is most of their range. Which means that although they live in those places in the summer, they are going to migrate south for the winter. And in the south, they live almost exclusively in the Chihuahuan grasslands in Mexico. Yes. Yes, and this is a uh, what we could, would consider a desert grassland. So it is a grassland, but it's very arid and has a lot of characteristics in common with the desert. So the Chihuahuan grasslands, for example, would occur in the Chihuahuan Desert or what gets labeled as the Chihuahuan Desert. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> the eastern birds will also migrate to the Caribbean and Central America, where there are also resident populations that just live in those grasslands all year round.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Yeah, so so they have like a weirdly eclectic widespread range.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Which is not what I thought before because I associate them so heavily with the whole range of Kansas prairies <laughs> here <laughs> in Kansas. So like, you know, short grass, mixed grass, and tall grass prairie um but you know when i say they live out west they also will live in shrub steppe grasslands out west which are more associated with um that sort of shrubby habitat that sage grouse mm-hmm. like so yeah really they they live everywhere and that makes them such a great representative
0: of grassland songbirds beautiful they really are just so cute i'm just i'm just like <laughs> staring at a picture of one they're very
1: very small, too, which you don't really appreciate <laughs> until you see pictures of people doing misnetting on them and see them in someone's hand. And it's like, my God, you uh-huh. could snap that thing's leg in half so yes. easy. <laughs> um, I don't know why that's my first thought, but it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Birds are just so fragile. They're little toothpick legs. Like, I yeah. don't, how do they ever survive? I don't know. They're, they're sturdier than you'd think, but also very <laughs> yeah, fragile. I... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> they're sturdier than you think. But also fragile. Okay, thank Shoo you. For makes that. sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I'm looking at this one that has like its mouth open and it's singing. I'm assuming maybe uh-huh. it's just being weird. But like their beaks are really big, and I guess that's just because grasshoppers are big too.
1: Like, yeah, it's probably a trait more for eating insects than uh-huh. cracking open seeds or something, which yeah. is also associated sometimes with thick beaks. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so 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 going back to the habitat these guys are living in, because they are living in so many different types of prairies, their biggest threats are the same biggest threats in general grassland ecosystems that you'd expect. So habitat loss, fragmentation, and degradation are their biggest threats and as far as the eastern populations that exist still they will live in those remnant coastal prairies but they've also started taking refuge in pastures and reclaimed mines and landfills those sorts of habitats because of the the shrinking of those coastal prairie ecosystems but in in all of those habitats they act pretty much the same and i think it'll become apparent in a second why they are happy to live in all of those habitats uh because they they do tend to walk and run more than they fly. They're very stealthy, but they forage mostly on the ground. So, they're running through the ground hunting bugs and because of that they don't mind habitats with bare ground, including Uh, pretty densely vegetated habitats like the tall grass prairie where (laughs) there might be burning and heavy grazing even more than what you would recommend they tend to do reasonably okay in those habitats compared to species that need dense vegetation because Mm -hmm. their feeding strategies involve a lot of bare ground but they do need grass to build their typical grassland songbird nests which are woven into little like dome-shaped nests so like basically picture like a little softball of grass but <laughs> it has an entrance on one side yeah that's a grasshopper sparrow nest maybe a little bit smaller i've actually been involved in some songbird grassland studies where i've i've been able to get some great pictures of those nests so i will put pictures of them on our website awesome uh, with the little tiny songbirds inside of them. And when they are raising these young, uh, grasshopper sparrows are one of those socially monogamous songbirds where both parents are involved with nestling. And a great example of vulnerable songbirds living in hay fields <laughs> <laughs> in the spring and why spring haying can be a pretty bad practice for grassland birds because a lot of the available habitat left for them is the kind of habitat that's hayed right when they've got grassy nests buried in the grass so you picture yeah. you know that haying mowing that happens in the spring a lot of those spring nestlings are just compacted into hay bales (laughs) oh no at a pretty vulnerable stage in in their their breeding season yeah so Mm -hmm. that's kind of sad um and they do have seasonal relationships so you know every spring a pair of them will get together and uh hopefully not gibbled over by hay bale uh, mowed over by (laughs) haying yep yep maybe (laughs) later thanks for that yeah um but what's what's really good about this and and i guess in general what's good about the grasshopper sparrow is that as a species they've been really really responsive to basic grassland management practices that are recommended moderate grazing prescribed burns and delayed mowing of hay fields that's again super basic recommendations for preserving grassland habitat and when those things are implemented, grasshopper sparrows bounce bounce back readily and do it great. So yeah, that's a good thing because those are really easy solutions to this problem. And it makes conserving their habitat super easy.
0: Yay. Yeah. It's always nice to have actionable things to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely.
1: Sorry, do you have any like grasshopper sparrow general questions? Because I'm gonna dive into the Florida grasshopper sparrow next.
0: Oh, Lord. Um, no, I'm still disturbed by their tiny, tiny, tiny upper beak and their thick bottom beak. But that's okay. You're going to have to that. That's a personal thing. That's just how they are. <laughs> and you're being a little
1: unnecessarily judgmental of their appearance.
0: I've, I'm just fascinated, honestly.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So that's that's the wider grasshopper sparrow as a species. And again, like other prairie birds, um, the threats to grasslands in general is what's causing them to be under threat. The story of the grasshopper sparrow in Florida is a little bit different. And this Florida grasshopper sparrow subspecies, like I mentioned, it is the most endangered bird in North America right now. I'm going to recommend that as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, you go listen to the American Birding Association podcast, where they spoke to one of the people working closely with this project about how they've been working with this subspecies. But as Nate Swick points out on that podcast, uh, he he calls them one of the most underrated bird stories of the last few years. Aww. Which... Is true, in my opinion. (laughs) Like, absolutely (laughs) the best description ever. Because this is a really, really recent story, and one of the reasons why I felt like this grasshopper sparrow was the species to cover first when it came to these, like, grassland denizens in North American prairies, right? This success story, and I'm gonna like put an asterisk on that success because we've really had one year of success, (laughs) which is a good sign, but we're not, you know, out of the woods just yet. Okay. Um, can I, I'm gonna ask you a question first, um, to kind of like figure out how much you understand about some of these endangered bird issues that have happened in the last like 30 years. Are you familiar at all with the dusky seaside sparrow? Nope. Oh, wow, okay, cool. Um, I'm gonna set the stage for this story by introducing, I think, the dusky seaside sparrow because a lot of the conservationists who are talking about the Florida grasshopper sparrow compare the plight of this bird to the dusky seaside sparrow and use that as an analogy for why conservationists have been so on top of this work with this species. So the Dusky Seaside Sparrow went extinct in, or was declared extinct in 1990. They were found to be in decline, but by the time they were brought into captivity to try and save them, they had acted too late and Mm -hmm. they could only find males. Oh no. And despite all of the efforts of the biologists at the time, they could not find a single female to bring into captivity to save the species. Interestingly, uh, Walt Disney World was quite involved in this conservation effort because they were living on grounds at Walt Disney World Resort Mm. in Florida. So the last existing male, Dusky Seaside Sparrow, died in the resort in 1987, and that's three years before they were declared extinct because people were holding out hope. Yeah. Uh, but it is considered extinct and has never been seen uh, since. And that bird is actually the last bird to go extinct in North America.
0: Oh, really?
1: Mm-hmm. So since then we haven't lost a single species or subspecies, which are also considered, you know, as equally important in conservation as species on the federal level. So we haven't lost any other birds since then.
0: That's wild.
1: I know. And so this, this might uh, kind of give the context we need to understand why a headline in 2018 by Scientific American that says, is this the year the Florida grasshopper sparrow goes extinct? Makes yeah. this story significant because that was a 30year period where we haven't lost a single species to extinction but the Florida grasshopper sparrow was rapidly approaching the brink and is kind of considered to be on I don't know a, a countdown toward extinction at this point yeah yeah you want to hear something kind of sad I don't know do I <laughs> i I don't know I don't it's not really sad I think it's almost it's sad in the sense that it's kind of haunting. You know, it's like seeing the the photographs of the last Tasmanian tiger or listening yeah. to a recording or the only known recording of the extinct Hawaiian birds, those sort of things that go around Facebook sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those sorts of things. So I have a a really beautiful hardback book that was published in 1964 by ornithologist Alexander Wetmore. And it's old enough that it has species accounts of extinct birds mm. as if they're just normal birds that aren't yeah. under any threat at all. Like the ivory-pilled woodpecker has a, a whole description in this book. and <laughs> That's awesome. I know, from like, you know, eyewitnesses and stuff. So it's kind of yeah it's that sort of haunting but these guys do mention these guys this one person mentions (laughs) the seaside sparrow the dusky seaside sparrow gosh and it so he he describes it um this is a direct quote from from this book this sparrow's song like the seasides is made up of buzzes and trills he sings frequently during nesting season sometimes on the wing yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's weirdly haunting to see somebody describe this bird that doesn't exist anymore. You know, the dusky is hard to see as he walks and flits about in the tall reeds, but he is not shy and will climb a stalk to eye you if you make a few bird-like squeaks with your lips against the back of your hand.
0: <laughs> <Aww>.
1: <laughs> he also describes how, uh, they live in Cape Kennedy and, uh, I, I just like his descriptions. He says, you know, the the Cape Kennedy jets out from the outer sandbank that lines much of the east coast of Florida. Here on launching pads stands giant, quote, birds poised for blast off. <laughs> the partly dry salt marshes near the Space Center are home to another bird, tiny but very much alive. The dusky seaside sparrow. Um, which of course is is now gone forever because we took action far too late for the species. Mm -hmm. And so in 2016, when people realized that the Florida grasshopper sparrow, which is a unique bird, because it's a resident, it does not migrate. It lives only on the dry prairies of Florida, has a distinct song, a very subtle but distinct appearance and is a native to these unique grasslands in Florida. It's endemic to that grassland in Florida. In 2016, they realized that things were getting dire, and the first captive breeding efforts started. Again, 2016. In 2017, they had had no success breeding the birds, and the population of wild Florida grasshopper sparrows reached a record low of 75 wild birds, which were mostly males. So they only had about mm, 30 pairs of birds Mm -hmm. that could reproduce. Um, It got even lower than that in subsequent years. So at that point, many thought it would fade into extinction pretty much exactly like the dusky seaside
0: sparrow did. Is, Is there any reason why both the the Dusky um, and the Florida Grasshopper Sparrow, that they ended up with more males than females? Was it just coincidence? Do you have any idea?
1: That's a really good question. And I, I don't immediately know the answer to why there is such a disparity in particular because there's so many different factors that could be at play, whether it's, you Mm -hmm. know, the shared parental roles being skewed in such a way that females are more at risk, whether it's, um, you know, birds can control the sexes of their offspring. So maybe it's just a better strategy to produce more males and that's normal for the species or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the reason is. Um, but what's, also incredibly difficult about these conservation efforts when you're especially down to limited numbers like that is that, you know, number one, you want to keep a wild population thriving because getting a bird that's extinct in the wild back into the wild is incredibly difficult because they have so many behaviors that are integral to survival that have to be learned from their parents. And that's extremely challenging even when you have a wild population left, let alone if you're trying to, you know completely start over with Mm -hmm. a bird that's only been in captivity. And also it's incredibly difficult because, you know, in trying to take a small number of birds from the wild to raise in captivity, it's never been done before. Like these, these birds have literally never been bred in captivity. And so the, the two primary institutions that were trying to do this, that were trying to pioneer this process had to start from scratch to figure out how to replicate this prairie environment they needed in captivity. Like how do we create an environment that's suitable to them? What temperature do the eggs need to be incubated at? What do we need to do to make sure that the birds that hatch, if we even get birds to hatch next year, uh, <laughs> to how do we make sure they get instilled with wild instincts? Yeah. And it's so complicated and What's interesting is that one of the primary groups that was doing this had only really done large birds like the whooping crane and the condor. They had not done tiny sparrows before, and their other species of interest were large African megafauna. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's it's an incredible challenge. And so trying to figure out what the optimal number of you know, experimental birds from this critically endangered species to bring in for these experiments in the first place? Hard. And then when the population continues crashing while you're trying to figure this out, that is also terrifying. Yeah, stressful. I do not want that job. Right? (laughs) And then what made this story even more complicated is they found out that one of the reasons why these birds might have been experiencing a decline, besides, you know, degradation of their prairie habitats, etc., is that they had diseases that they had never identified in these birds before. And so then it was a huge issue when they finally got reproductive success uh, for them to say, now, wait a minute, these birds have very contagious parasitic diseases that are very fatal. Were they present in these wild birds that we can barely study because they're critically endangered? If we <laughs> release these birds now, will we endanger the wild populations? And of course, with my 2020 lens, I'm probably way more sensitive to like a fear of wildlife diseases than I would have been yeah. if you'd asked me about this in 2019. But that became such a controversial issue that it actually caused the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who disagreed so much with the scientists at one of these institutions, that they broke their contract with one of the breeding institutions for this bird in 2019, mm. took the birds away from them and then released them anyway against oh. the scientists, which is, yeah, which is wow. a whole other thing that I'm kind of, like, getting ahead of myself almost and bringing up at this point. But, like, <laughs> it, it was a huge, huge deal. So, man, it's, it's just such a crazy effort. 2018 was the year when people were really feeling the squeeze for the grasshopper sparrow, the Florida grasshopper sparrow. That's when they had discovered the protozoan parasite and were trying to, you know, look at ways to curb that, where they were trying to pioneer new ways of getting birds out into the wild and all of that good stuff. And they had Hmm. finally figured out their their captive breeding in a way that they thought could be successful, which, you know, a lot of these birds, I'm I'm only saying birds because I'm only familiar, I guess, with birds in this context. But a lot of birds have been saved from the brink of extinction around the world Mm -hmm. from being brought into captivity for those captive breeding programs. So the the people that make these efforts are absolutely incredible. I know even our local zoo, the Cedric County Zoo, has pioneered some captive breeding programs for endangered birds in Mm -hmm. other parts of the world. So I just have a lot of respect for these captive breeding programs and the intensity and the complexity of what they're trying to do
0: yeah absolutely it is not easy <laughs> mm. one nod bird example that comes to mind is the black-footed ferret come on oh yeah so yeah you know, they literally took all the ferrets they could find which wasn't very many <laughs> after they already thought this animal was extinct brought them into captivity lost a bunch of them because I didn't know what they were doing and then managed to hold on to like a small handful of them and breed them back from the verge of extinction, which is just, again, terrifying to think about. I would not want to be like, it'd be cool to be a part of a team like that, but like the pressure is on. (laughs) Yeah. And especially when you've
1: devoted millions of dollars into these programs and you know, you're, you're releasing animals back into the wild that have not been in the wild because they were born in captivity. It's yes. such a moment of holding your breath to see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me boil down what has happened since that critical moment in 2018 when the birds were dipping to a, a critical level in the wild. And they had finally gotten birds to reproduce successfully in captivity. In 2019, there were plans to release captive bred Florida grasshopper sparrows into wild populations. And I did mention that there was some controversy around Mm -hmm. this. That was primarily the, the Rare Species Conservatory Foundation, which was partnered with Florida International University. The scientists from that group, were really concerned about the fatality and infection risk from introducing infections into the wild. There was a report that was released in April 2019, which was two months after the Fish and Wildlife Service um, broke, I don't know if broke is the right term for this way that a contract ended. ended their contract with this organization. Um, But I will note that when they released this workshop report about the risks of disease, (laughs) the representative from that foundation was still a part of that workshop, so their input was considered in the workshop report regardless. Um, The conclusion they made was that because of the critical turning point of the wild population and the information that they did have available about at least some of the strains they'd identified in the captive birds – being mm-hmm. present in some of the wild populations already and some of the assumptions that were made by the disease experts that transmission would not be quite as bad as it was in a captive environment. They decided that the disease risk was worth it because the species itself was so much on the verge as their numbers shrank even further to, I think, something around 20 breeding pairs were left at this point. Wow. Yeah, um, They did release captive birds into the wild for the first time in May 2019. And of course, one of the things that you have to consider when re-releasing these is birds isn't just how do you keep these birds successful, which if you want to hear more about how they did this, I would really recommend, again, listening to that uh, interview with with uh, Andrew Walker, who was... The president of the Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida, uh, one of the groups working toward this effort, they talk in depth about all the measures they implemented to make the captive breeding program actually work and be successful. Super, super fascinating listen. Um, But to summarize, they found a way to to get some, like, foster parents that were adult or juvenile wild birds to assist with the young birds. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, and to kind of you know, recreate a prairie-like environment in captivity as opposed to, like, you know, sterile cages. (laughs) Uh, Additionally, they had to make sure that the major threats to the species in the wild were dealt with. And with the grasshopper sparrow in the wild, um, their primary issues were fire management, which were taken care of, In Florida, unlike places like Kansas, where we're super used to fire as a conservation method, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of landowners are kind of reluctant to use fire as a management strategy. So that's an easy fix. And the places being managed for the Florida grasshopper sparrow are crossing that off. So awesome. The other two primary threats are actually predators. Is it feral cats? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I actually don't remember, Um, but the biggest threat I know for sure is not feral cats. It's an invasive species, the red fire ant. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Which might sound kind of shocking, but as somebody who has worked with the Eastern Grasshopper Sparrow, ants eat a lot of baby sparrows even you know native ants they're a tiny bird nesting on the ground and so invasive fire ants were causing a lot of mortality in florida grasshopper sparrows Uh, additionally there were of course larger predators so they built predator exclusion fences around them to keep out their biggest predators what how do you exclude ants Okay, yeah. That's great question, Nicole, because they <laughs> did not exclude fire ants by building <laughs> fences. <laughs> when it came to fire ant management, they boiled poured boiling water into fire ant nests. <laughs> Gnarly. And that's the best way to take care of fire ants. So yeah, it's something that does not have any negative environmental effects, and is pretty yeah. good at wiping out fire ant colonies. Uh, just carrying vats of boiling water and <laughs> dumping them into the fire ant nests, and amazing. This apparently worked, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, with with those solutions of like you know, what's the ideal habitat? How do we instill natural instincts in captive birds? How do we ensure we're not Introducing diseases uh, to the best of our ability. Uh, With those things resolved enough that they felt comfortable releasing the birds, they were released. The predator exclusion slash boiling (laughs) appeared to have worked. And here is what gives me absolute chills, Nicole, because in September of last year, 2020, Mm -hmm. 65% of all the young born in the wild, had at least one captive bred parent.
0: Oh, wow. That's insane. I know. Isn't that
1: amazing? And so what a better example, or there, there is not a better example of all of your fears being completely like washed over and your expectations being met and seeing that the project at least in terms of population and population numbers and the success mm-hmm. of those captive birds it worked they were having no apparent negative impacts on the birds being able to avoid predators like even mm. little things like oh when there was a hawk spotted our captive bred birds knew how to like dive into the grass and avoid predators <laughs> which seems like such a basic thing but like seeing that in action such a relief yeah. But also seeing that captive birds were able to, you know, have courtship with wild partners and mm-hmm. to find mates and to successfully rear young. That's so huge. Yeah. And so when I say that this is an, a success story with an asterisk, it's it's a pretty big success story, but mm-hmm. we're just in the beginning phase and there's about a five-year plan for the success of this species so there's some some work to go but you know for all of the hardships this project has endured and everything kind of being stacked against them and a lot of controversy about how to do what's best for the species and for the individual birds you know it's it's pretty incredible that they've gone from not being able to have a single chick born in captivity to having 65 percent of wild chicks coming from a captive parent
0: No, yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. I would have guessed
0: that if you actually put some time and effort into something, that we can make a difference instead of just hoping that it gets better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. And it's
1: so, I think, I don't know, just relieving and heartwarming Mm -hmm. and hope. Filling it, Like, just, like, it fills everybody with hope. And especially the people in Florida who feel, like, a sort of ownership over the success of this species. You know, like, this is their endemic prairie bird. It's yeah. distinct from eastern grasshopper sparrows, although it has so many similarities to it. And it's a way to almost, like, make up for mistakes in the past that are still today sort of haunting our conservation efforts. Yeah. And it's so cool to see this working. Yeah. So we have a long ways to go not only for the Florida Grasshopper Sparrow but for all of these little grassland sparrows and grassland species. You know, the Grasshopper Sparrow as a as a whole, so the Eastern Grasshopper Sparrow is on the yellow watch list as so is the Henslow's Sparrow which is another ultra secretive similar but more streaky little sparrow. Mm -hmm. You know, a a lot of these birds are facing some historically low points in their numbers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just am very hopeful, especially now with so many organizations and governmental agencies and partners of those agencies stating outright that, you know, we're watching this decline in prairie birds as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we're recognizing and trying to make steps toward conservation. I, I have a lot of hope that we're in a moment now where we're not going to let what happened to birds like the dusky seaside sparrow happen again. I'm I'm really, really hopeful and really excited and we'll have to save Henslow sparrows for another time because I know our, <laughs> our friend Lindsay has actually done field work for Henslow sparrows. But, you know, some of the most charismatic little birds out on the prairie that you know, their their sound fills the landscape, whether you recognize who's responsible for that sound or not. I, I hope that, like Joel Sartori said, you know, starting to, to care about these tiny birds that are kind of the least among us, that are really unassuming, humble, mousy little sparrows, <laughs> can really kind of capture our heart and be a gateway drug for nature and for these grassland habitats.
0: Aww. That was so cute. (laughs) I know.
1: I'm not going to cry over them. I've already done that. So we're going to hold it together today.
0: (laughs) That was beautiful. Thank you. I love grasshopper sparrows. That's totally fair. I do too. And I hope you do too, dear listener. (laughs) And thank you for listening to the best biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser at Podcasts. It really helps us a lot. Give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter, send us fan mail, or leave us a voicemail. And we'll see you next week. If you want to donate to a conservation organization working
1: to release these birds back into the wild, White Oak Conservation is currently the only organization actually actively breeding these birds. Birds in captivity. So go check them out and consider supporting them. Please do. Save the grasshopper sparrow. Save the world's prairies.